Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Haram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. As always, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast and for supporting the podcast as well. For today's episode, I wanted to focus on a more conceptual topic, one that I think is often talked talked about within the Muslim community and is extremely important. And I think something that has become uh, much more of a, I guess, a talking point within modern Muslims as well, and especially for younger Muslims specifically. And that is the topic of the Ummah, or more specifically, what exactly is the Ummah? And to an extent, of course, what is the Khalifat or the broader unified Muslim political, social, and economic community. Uh, And the reason that I wanted to focus on this is because, as I mentioned, the idea of what the ummah is, is first off, very important to, uh, you know, Muslims and Islam in general. It's something that is often talked about and something that that is mentioned a lot within Islamic doctrines, within Islamic Uh, theology within the Quran and within many hadiths as well. And yet, even though this is such an important thing, it's not exactly defined clearly, I think, amongst many Muslims as to what this thing that is the ummah or this idea of what the ummah is, uh, is really focused on uh, in in a clear way. And and kind of the other reason why I wanted to focus on this is because for many of us in, you know, in, in, I guess, the youth among the Muslim community, the ummah has become a thing that I think a lot more people have focused on, especially when it comes to the failures that we see within some of the nation states that some of us come from. I mean, some people from across the Muslim world will be coming from many failed states, and these failed states leave much for us to, to want more, more than you know, the the power-hungry struggles you see in some of these countries where the idea of the ummah is the idea of a unified Muslim body that follows the the just ways that we see within the Quran uh, and within the hadiths and the teachings uh, of the Prophet Muhammad And as such, that's why I felt that it was at least important to get into the topic of what is the actual ummah. Now, I want to make sure that I clarify that I will not be going through every single detail that has to do with the Ummah, because that's just impossible. I mean, there's no way I can get through every single thing. And in fact, I'm not even going to get into that many things, because I, again, I just can't. I hope to at least, as always, get into at least an introductory stance uh, with it, and at least maybe go through some major points that I find. Uh, and, and as always, with many of my episodes where I only do an introductory sort of stance to it, I hope that you guys go and do your own research and look into it further on your own as well. But the three main goals of this episode, at least, is to understand or at least maybe get a better idea of what being a part of an ummah or even what this you know idea of the ummah is about Um a better idea of also how do we or should we view what the ummah is and to also get into the idea of whether it is a rigid or a fluid concept meaning is it something that is sort of stuck in one certain way or can it be sort of reimagined in different contexts and i think that 
really, you know, to, to begin this discussion, I wanted to at least talk about where I've often heard the talk about the Ummah. And I think the most common place that I've heard the talk about sort of the Ummah and the idea of a Muslim community is within many, uh, you know, Friday khutbas and many lectures and speeches by people who are, you know, telling Muslims about the, the strength amongst the Muslim community. And many of the the speeches that I've heard, of course, came from, you know, uh, is, uh, you know imams or, or you know, uh, Islamic lecturers, either, you know, on the internet or, you know, at the masjid and, you know, the Friday khutbahs. Uh, but for the most part, you know, a lot of uh, the, the talk within many of these, uh, you know, religious speeches will be about the ummah or, you know, a broader sense of saying just the Muslim community. Because people might just say, the Muslim community, but they can also mean, of course, you know, the Ummah. And I think that we hear this term so often, but the real kind of, I guess, question that came to my mind is, do we really know what it means or what it implies? Like, do we really understand what, when, when we mention, you know, unite the Ummah or, you know, we are an Ummah, what does that really mean? What does that really imply for us? And why do we talk about the Ummah so much? You know, like, what is this thing that we attach so much to it? You know, if some if somebody told you to, you know, follow uh, the way that, you know, the ancient Romans lived, you'd probably say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. But when I tell you, you know, would you want to live in the way of, you know, the, the Ummah and, and the old uh, ways of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, I'm sure there's some of you that would say, yeah, sure, I, I would. You know, what is it about the Ummah that we attract so much to it? And And, you know, I mean, obviously there is, a, uh, I guess, a obvious answer, and that's that it is, of course, in a part of the teachings of Islam. But I think there's more to it in that. I think there's also an attachment to uh, sort of a glory days of Islam. This, I, this, you know, days when Islam was uh, at least perceived to be a much stronger religion than what we see nowadays. Not that the religion itself is weak, but more that the uh, practitioners of it are not as strong as they once were in, you know, a lot of political, economic, or even social affairs. It's not as strong. And the ummah, or the idea of attaching back to it, allows us to sort of travel back in time and, and reconnect with what we perceive to be the glory days of the religion, at least in terms of its physical manifestations. And I think lastly, an important thing that also came to my mind is, is this talk really useful? You know, does it really help? This idea of the Ummah, does it really help us? Is it maybe a bad idea in terms of the fact that maybe the attachment to an Ummah is not what's needed for the Muslim community? Not that the ideas of the Ummah within the Quran are wrong, of course not, but more the way that people are trying to apply them or the way that people sort of look to, is that maybe wrong? And so there's a lot of ways and a lot of things that I've uh, or thought about when it comes to the Ummah, but I think that, you know, for the most part, these are the kind of things that came to my mind. Of course, I'm sure for you who is listening to this, when you think of the Ummah, and if you were to close your eyes, and you would really think about it, you know, what is it the way that you would imagine? You know, like, I want you to think about this when you're going through this episode, you know, if you close your eyes, and you really thought about the Ummah, like, what comes to your mind? What is it that you kind of you feel what is the idea that comes to your brain what is the visualization of it what is the concept of it and what are the feelings that you have towards it where does this idea of the ummah attach to you 
Now, aside from maybe our own ideas or interpretations of what we see the Ummah as, there are, of course, many definitions that look at or try to understand what it means to be an Ummah or to even have, you know, a Khalifat or a ruler or, you know, a unified Muslim body is essentially what I'm trying to say. And there are many different ways of looking at this, many different, uh, I guess, concepts or, you know, theories that go behind what would make, uh, you know, a strong unified Muslim body. Uh, but I felt that I should at least give maybe one general idea or explanation uh, as to what maybe the ummah is or kind of what uh, is a way of seeing it. And, you know, I I found a, a good lecture uh, by Umar Suleiman that actually discusses a hadith that basically talks about how Muslims are one body. And, you know, the reason I chose a, a hadith was because of the fact that, of course, this is the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad Wasallam basically defining it himself. So that's a pretty good authority, in my opinion. Um, and also because of the fact that the hadith uh, itself is well known, uh, and as well as the lecture itself explains the hadith. And so this is maybe better in terms of a source because of the fact that there's an actual explanation behind the hadith and its context rather than just sort of me finding a hadith and then just quoting it. Because a lot of people will do this, where they'll find a hadith and then start quoting it without actually knowing the, the full context or the, or the uh, how do I say this, the, the history or maybe the translation that goes behind that hadith. Because oftentimes there are actual misinterpretations because people misquote hadiths without actually looking at some of the historical background that goes behind them. And so this hadith, which refers to Muslims as one body, and I'm sure some of you have actually probably heard of it or uh, already know maybe a, a different translation of it, but essentially it goes as follows. Allah's Messenger, uh, Prophet Muhammad said, you see the believers as regards their being merciful among themselves and showing love among themselves and being kind, resembling one body, so that if any part of the body is not well, then the whole body shares the sleeplessness or insomnia and fever with it. And so this is quoted in Sahih al-Bukhari, Book 78, Hadith 42, I believe that's the proper way to cite this. I apologize if it's not. Uh, I will post a link of uh, the hadith in the description of uh, this episode. So you can just follow it there and find, you know, the actual maybe full citation of it. Uh, but nonetheless, the hadith itself essentially does emphasize, of course, the idea of Muslims being one body. And there's many, you know, interesting points here because it talks about, you know, mercy, talks about love and it talks about being kind and it talks about how all those go into that one body that resembles, you know, the unity of the Muslim community. And also that if one part of the body is not well, then the whole body shares that, uh, you know, sleeplessness or that, um, you know, illness. And it doesn't allow it to ignore the pain. And that's, that's very interesting as a hadith, right? Because it's basically talking about how not only is important for the Muslim Ummah to be an Ummah, to be connected, to be together, but also that it is important for them to be caring of each other as well. 
Now, Umar Suleiman actually breaks this down into three parts, and this is why I also wanted to pick this hadith, because he does go into the hadith, and he explains it, and I'm obviously not going to go into full detail, because he goes into much more detail. Uh, I will, of course, also include the lecture in the link as well, so you can check that out as well. It's about, I think, 20 minutes long? I think I think it's about around that length, 20 minutes long, so it's not too long of a hadith, uh, or uh, of a lecture, sorry, but it's still uh, worth, I think, listening to if you have the time. But I will be going through it real quickly, his explanation of it, and essentially he breaks down this hadith into three parts. And basically he mentions that there's three main parts that this hadith talks about. It talks about affection, mercy, and sympathy. And there's essentially a uh, sort of a, I guess you want to say, a level to this, in that affection is first, Mercy is second and sympathy is third. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, necessarily one is better than the other. Um, but what I think it really gets into sort of uh, the the levels of the three is more that, you know, the idea of the unity is sort of based on these three principles. And again, I'm just going through this quickly. So he goes into much more detail where he explains it clearly. Um, but the reason that affection is first is because the main idea goes behind it that you love people or you love, you know, the ummah so much that you help, you gift, and you sort of show affection to them or you show love to each, to each other consistently and love each other in every way. And so some scholars have called this both a feeling and an action. And one great example is sort of spreading salam amongst ourselves. So like when you see someone walking by who is Muslim or you know them to be Muslim, you say, Salam. You say assalamu alaikum, you say salam, whatever. Right? You you greet them. You don't ignore them because you show the affection of it. And for those of you who of course understand that assalamu alaikum is basically saying peace and blessings be upon you, right? Uh, it's basically sending peace to someone, right? The whole our whole greeting, you know, assalamu alaikum, wa alaikum assalam, it's basically, you know, uh, saying peace upon an another person. And so that itself is a form of love. Because you're sending love their way through that. And that's something where he talks about how that's sort of the first level uh, of being that sort of body. is showing affection to each other. The second part is mercy. And that's the forgiveness and the mercy amongst ourselves. But the presence of love doesn't necessarily always exist when you give that mercy. And so this essentially is about letting things go and being forgetful, forgiving, of others maybe shortcomings or things that other people have done to you. Uh, it's it's kind of a, you know, I think a important thing to remember that mercy doesn't necessarily mean that you give mercy relentlessly. It, it more or less means that you are merciful in context. So, you know, someone who deserves mercy should be given it per se, uh, but you know, someone who maybe always breaks your trust are they deserving of maybe mercy? Maybe they're more deserving of you letting the thing go, but not forgetting about what they did. You know, I remember I was watching a Mufti Mank lecture, uh, and he basically said a really nice line where he said that Muslims, we, we, for, we forgive, but we don't forget. So we should forgive people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you should forget everything that that person might have done to you. You know, if that person consistently mistreats you, then maybe it's time to, you know, move on. But at the same time that you move on, you should also forgive them. And so that's part of, you know, being one body as well, is understanding that, okay, this person might have done me wrong, but I'm willing to forgive them 
and I'm willing to move on for the for the sake of you know of mercy, and that's it. And now the last point here, being sympathy, is that you feel the pain of others at the bare minimum, uh, and really this is more of a feeling sort of uh, aspect where you feel uh, you know the the pain maybe that others go through or you feel the pain that others are suffering around you as well. And, you know, this is, uh, I think, a very interesting one, and one that I think is uh, very important as well, because of the fact that, you know, it it is sort of one where I think can at times uh, be something really good and sometimes something really bad, where sometimes people will just sort of feel sympathetic to things, but they won't actually do anything to change them, right? And so I think that's maybe why of the three, this is maybe the lowest one because, you know, affection and mercy are things where, you know, you sort of have to go out of your way where you have to do an action. But with sympathy, it's more about just sort of your, your feeling, right? You're not necessarily doing something. Um, but at the same time, you know, sympathy is still important as well, because of course we should be sympathetic to each other as uh, you know, a Muslim community. And, you know, Umar Suleiman also kind of sums this up where he has a great line where he says that the issue of faith is a question of faith as well, right? And that you can't really have all these things where you want affection, mercy, or sympathy without having that faith as well. And that's sort of the core in all of this, right? Is that deep down, you know, as as much of the uh, political or social or economic things that we can think about for the ummah, at the end of the day, the core is nothing to do with that. The core is to do with our faith. Right, or Iman, that's that's all that matters is because at the end of the day, that's the core of all of this. Right. And so as much as I may be talking about economic or political or, or social kind of things, at the end of the day, it is our faith that is the ultimate part of what would make the Ummah uh, the Ummah. But even with that being said, I can't help but think that there still is kind of a, a problem with all of this, or at least there's there's a question that's sort of not answered. And, and you know, faith is, of course, a big part of what makes the Ummah the Ummah. Obviously, it is. But I think the biggest thing that comes to my mind now is how do you really conceptualize and apply this? Like, how do you conceptualize and apply what the Ummah is or what it's supposed to be? And, you know, even if we know things like affection, mercy, and sympathy are our clear characteristics that the the hadith that I quoted earlier mentions, but like, how do we act upon this? And how do these three things lead to the connection of the ummah becoming one body? And, and I guess what I'm really trying to get at is that, you know, we so often accept, you know, hadiths uh, from, uh, you know, hadiths or, or, you know, quotes from the Quran or, you know, good sort of uh, lessons or, um, you know, a good sort of, I guess, messages from Islamic scholars and, and you know, resourceful people, etc. Uh, you know, however you want to explain that. But the real question that I think comes to my, comes to my mind is how, right? How, how do we get from this, you know, no ummah to becoming an ummah? You know, and what are the different ways that we can imagine or, or see what that ummah is supposed to be. And I think this is really important because quoting hadiths is great, but we do still need action to some degree. And I think that's where I kind of get caught up as well. When I hear talk about the ummah, I, I I don't know how do you begin it, right? How does this whole thing, uh, you know, start off? 
And there's, there's a lot of questions that we should ask ourselves. And I will also say, and maybe this is, you know, a bit hypocritical for me to say this now, but I obviously don't know how to answer this question. And one of the reasons is because I'm not a learned person, right? I'm not an imam. I'm not a scholar of hadith. I, I don't know, you know, the Quran off by heart. So I don't really know how to answer this question. But I still do think that there's a lot of questions you should ask yourself or things that we should be, that we should remember when we are thinking about what the ummah is or how the ummah should be sort of formulated in terms of an actual conceptual idea. And this is really what comes from, in, in my opinion, my, uh, you know, my political science and global affairs background, because these are the kind of things that came to my mind. And, you know, I think one of the important things that sometimes people will implicitly say, but they don't explicitly say, which kind of hurts what they're trying to implicitly say. Uh, but when we actually do view the ummah, it cannot be focused on one region or area, but it must literally connect all Muslims from a variety of backgrounds without bias. And I know some people will say, well, duh, of course it should. But no, like this is a really important thing to say. If you're an ummah and you're one body, you can't have one part of the body be better than the other, right? Or else you would have an unhealthy body. You need a healthy body, which is a body that is equal. And you can't have that if you're just focused on one region or area and you don't forget and you or you, you know, forget about all the other areas. And and I think a great way of looking at this is that people think of Muslims and they think of the Middle East. But that can't be true because we know that's not true, because we know there's Muslims in other parts of the world. We know that there's Muslims that exist in many different countries, uh, you know, ranging from Asia to Europe to Africa to South America uh, to North America. We're on every continent, you know, and of course, we're not going to make an ummah on every single country. I think you also kind of implicitly say that usually it'll be Muslim-majority countries or Muslim-majority areas that would want to theoretically be part of the ummah. But again, regardless of where they come from, they have to be treated equally. And they would also need to be given the, I guess, the, uh, you know, the treatment of being a body. So being given affection, mercy, and sympathy to all people, regardless of their background. So regardless of maybe, you know, the ethnicity that the person is, you as a Muslim would just see them as a Muslim, not as an ethnic uh, you know, identity. You wouldn't look at their ethnic background. And I think this is also one that is sort of tough for some people, because I think that many people will often say that, you know, they are non-biased or that, you know, they don't see, uh, you know, stuff like ethnicity or race, but then their actions speak differently. Their actions show that they do, in fact, judge people by ethnicity or race. And I would say that if you really want an ummah, if you really want, uh, you know, a just sort of Muslim, I don't know, kingdom? No, not kingdom. Maybe just Muslim, uh, you know, government, then you cannot see people that way. You must do your best to avoid that. Because again, that's not fulfilling the idea of being one body. That's not how it works. And as I mentioned before, of course, these are just sort of some ideas that I've, that I've thought of when I think of, you know, the, the ummah, or at least the problems that I would see. And I think that there are other levels to this. And you know, this was just sort of on a personal level, you know, in terms of a 
person-to-person level. But I think on another hand, there's also, of course, the national level to this. And that's more to do with the problems when it comes to Muslim leadership. Uh, you know, people will, I, I think, pretty easily say, and, and I, I don't think this is a controversial uh, point. Uh, I hope it's not a controversial point. But let's just be honest. Most Muslim leaders in the world suck. They, they suck real bad. They are terrible. They are bad people. You know, and, and there's so many Muslim leaders who will use Islam to uh, kill people, who will use Islam to murder and hurt others. Uh, just because they can and just because, you know, they have the authority to do so. Um, you know, I think a, a perfect example and the, the most radical example in recent times is probably the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban use Islam to basically kill, murder, subjugate people, to hurt others. Um, you know, th- there, there's obviously different layers of the Taliban. And uh, I mean, I, I will say this as a person who has a background in politics and in international affairs, uh, the Taliban are more complicated than I think just what Western media views them as. But nonetheless, you know, they still do use Islam in a very radical form. Like there's even certain things that they that they uh, force people to do that even I think some of the more stricter Muslims that I've ever met would never do, right? And yet that's part of this, right? Like if if you had stronger Muslim leadership, that actually followed the Sunnah, that actually followed the rules that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu set out, you know, that knew something like the Hadith that I mentioned before about showing affection, mercy, and sympathy, would they really subjugate the masses that these so-called Muslim leaders have done? No, they wouldn't. Because they know that, you know, a real Muslim Ummah, if you were to rule like that, relies on mercy, sympathy, and affection. So you can't be a, a tyrant to others. And, and if you've ever read the Quran, you know, and, and again, uh, I'm not an expert in the Quran, but I know I'm not wrong about this. But the Quran very explicitly says that the tyrants of the world will be brought before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they will pay for their crimes. You know, how many times does the Quran mention the Pharaoh? And it says about, you know, the Pharaoh will, will serve his punishment. He'll get what's coming to him. You know, it talks about, you know, the, the Makkan people who turned against or who, you know, attacked the, the companions and the Prophet It mentions they'll get, you know, their, uh, their um, you know, their punishment. I think it's Abu Lahab, right? That, what's the surah? Uh, oh, I'm blanking on its name. Uh, the surah that basically says, you know, Abu Lahab and his wife, I think it is, they'll face the punishment, Right. They'll, they'll face the punishment uh, of, uh, you know, of their mistreatment to the Prophet Muhammad and, and I think that that's just, you know, part of this. But that the national level and, and the national part of the Ummah is something that is going to be harder to really, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to word this, counter? I don't know about counter being the best word, but, you know, it's going to be a hard thing to overcome. And, and it's something that I think definitely pulls back the idea of what an ummah would be or, you know, formulating the ummah as well. Because the real question we must ask ourselves is that there's so many self-interested leaders in the Muslim community. Uh, how do you even counter this, right? Like, how do you overthrow some of these? Or, okay, I don't want to use the word overthrow. Uh, I'm not encouraging anyone to overthrow anyone. 
Um, but I'm just saying that, you know, how do you talk about, you know, uh, righting the wrongs in some of these areas uh, without sort of uh, changing the national level? It's very difficult. You can't, right? In Syria, for example, right, the Assad regime is, is a dictatorship. Uh, you know, what's Syria going to look like uh, with, you know, a dictator at its, at its, as its leader, right? I, I don't know. And I think this is going to be something that's definitely a main issue. And, and again, uh, I just want to emphasize this again, I'm not telling anyone to take any action whatsoever. I'm just telling you to think. I'm not saying anything else whatsoever. Do not take any action or anything of that sort. I'm just saying, you know, the national level is something very important as well uh, when it comes to sort of this idea, at least, of what the ummah is supposed to be. But then I think the other problem with all of this, and one that uh, I did sort of touch upon a little bit before, was that there are also many different interpretations of what the ummah should be or what it would be like. And that's also what makes this question of how you would formulate the ummah, or at least what kind of conceptualizations you would go behind it, that makes it also so much harder to really answer. Because everyone would probably look at it in different ways. And, you know, would there have to be, for example, one khalif that would lead every Muslim? Is there even a need for a khalifah? Is there any need for, you know, a one absolute ruler? Or would there maybe be, a, you know, a different sort of look at things? Is there a different way of organizing it? Would it be, uh, dare I say, a, a democracy? Would there be a democracy that would rule uh, as a Muslim ummah? You know, it, it's something that I, I'm not really sure, you know, we really know the answer of. Like, would we really be one unified Muslim ummah? Or would it be better if there was more regional outlooks uh, of a Muslim ummah? So rather than having a Muslim ummah from North Africa to, you know, the Middle East, to, you know, South Asia, East Asia, you know, Europe, uh, or, okay, maybe not Europe, I, I think more of, you know, Central Asia, the Southern European region, like, you know, countries uh, like Albania or Bosnia, you know, would it be better to, rather than having one large Muslim ummah, you sort of have different regions within the Muslim ummah? You know, I've, I've heard someone suggest this before. But I guess my worry with that is what's the difference between that and having nation states where you have just a bunch of states within one region? I guess the idea would be more that, you know, there'd be like a North African Ummah or there would be an East African Ummah or there'd be an East Asian Ummah. I don't know, you know, but, but I think that the point that I'm trying to make here is that there's different ways to conceptualize this. And that's the other problem, again, when it comes to making the Ummah is how do you organize all of this? How do you, you know, organize um, all of these different varieties of ideas or, or people uh, into an ummah in the first place? Um, and I think that it's also important when talking about how the government would kind of be formulated, that it's very different to sort of uh, determine how it should be formulated. Because technically speaking, um, and, and I could be wrong about this, so correct me if I am wrong. But technically speaking, I don't think the Quran or even the Hadiths of the Prophet Muhammad really give a clear indication as to how the government should be ruled. 
there are maybe things that the government should or should not do. And there are actual things in the Hadith, I believe, that actually dictate what like a just ruler is. Or basically, they tell, you know, what is a just rule in terms of at least what is, you know, a person who is in power, what they're supposed to and what they're not supposed to do. Uh, and of course, the Quran also tells us this because it goes over, you know, just rulers like uh, Prophet Dawood Prophet Sulaiman and unjust rulers like people uh, like the Pharaoh or, you know, the people of Makkah, the Quraysh. We know what unjust rulers are and we know what just rulers are. So we, we are sort of shown that difference, right? So that that's all there. But at the end of the day, it's not like the Quran says, oh, you can't have a democracy. That's un-Islamic. It doesn't say that. And at the same time, it doesn't say, you know, you can't have a khalif who's the one ruler over everyone. It doesn't say that either, right? There is, of course, theories that go behind how leadership should be run, but it doesn't necessarily say you should do one and not the other. So you can kind of see where the dilemma comes in here because you're trying to organize the ummah or, you know, a, a unified body, but you don't really know how you would maybe organize some of the political aspect of things. But even then, again, I cannot stress enough, and, and this goes back to the, to the lecture that I mentioned before, the essential point is faith, right? Faith is the essential point. It's the most important thing, and it is the crucial thing when it comes to whatever the ummah or even a unified body would have to remotely be. And my last point here, to, to kind of, I guess, sum this stuff up, I think that when we also are looking at the Ummah, we shouldn't over-romanticize the historical Khalifs either. And, and I'm actually going to get into this in the next episode, which will also be on the Ummah, but it will focus more on sort of the historical Ummahs and sort of looking at what the Ummah has looked like in previous generations. But I can't emphasize enough um, that you should not romanticize them. And romanticizing, of course, is where you overplay the significance or the importance and you downplay some of the uh, negatives of some of these uh, you know, rulers or the Khalifs themselves. Because even though, yes, the Khalifs existed and, you know, uh, even after the Khalifs, there was, you know, sultans and, you know, there was other kingdoms that rose and fell, you know, the Ottomans, the Mamluks, um, you know, the, the Mughals, um, uh, you know, the, uh, was it the Abbasids, the Umayyads, etc., etc., etc. All these, you know, rulers that came and went, but not all of them were great rulers. There's certain things, I guarantee you, and I will go over some of these things in the next episode. There's certain things that some of these rulers did that you'd probably look back and say, huh, yeah, I don't know if that's a Muslim thing to be doing, but some of them still did it. And I think that this is something that's really important because when we are looking at the ummah for today, this is the biggest negative when it comes to looking at the past. People will look at the past and say, well, they did this, so we should too. No, they did that in the context of their historical time. They did that in the context of what was maybe acceptable in their time. And they also did some things, like I will say, that you would say is not Muslim. That is not a good thing for Muslims to be doing. But some of them still did it, right? And so I think that rather than contextualizing uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the ideas of 
you know, the past. And, and the same actually can be applied to the present as well, where you will see people that will apply the ideas of stuff like Marxism or liberalism or, you know, capitalism into Islam. And, and I think to some degree, you know, there is good to it because of the fact that I, I think that there are some ideas, of course, that Islam does overlap. For example, socialism, the idea of where, you know, the, the state should pay for social services. Yes, Yes, that's something that Islam does advocate, right? Islam is, at its very least, a, a, a religion that says that the poor should be taken care of. Does it necessarily advocate for the things that socialism advocates for? No, it doesn't. What it advocates for is things that overlap with socialism. But that does not mean that Islam is a religion that aligns itself with socialism. That's not at all what is happening, nor does Islam even mention anything like that. And so we shouldn't make it, you know, seem like it does. And then the same thing goes with capitalism, where Islam doesn't say that, you know, people who are rich are bad. What it says is that people who are greedy, people who steal, who hurt others are bad, right? But the rich are not necessarily bad because, you know, even amongst the companions, there was rich people, but it wasn't them being rich that defined them. It was their actions that did. So being rich isn't necessarily bad. It's your actions that you do with your wealth, right? Because the core concept in Islam, of course, is that all this is just worldly things. And the true test of the believer is knowing that the real world, the real life begins in the afterlife. And, and I don't want to get into much of an Islamic lecture here, but I think that's really important when it comes to how we contextualize the political ideas that we bring into Islam because again right there are clear guidelines that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us through this religion and that those things should be followed and that we shouldn't corrupt them with worldly ideas that did not come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is again why you know we shouldn't look at the past and right now and say you know this is how we should rule or this is how we shouldn't rule i think that the quran gives us clear guidelines of what is good and bad and that we should take what is good from these things you know what is good from the khalifs or from you know the sultans and you know from modern ideas and we should apply them in, in islamic standards and Again, <laughs> kind of maybe hypocritical for me to say this, but of course, I don't know what the full answer is. And, and what I'm really hoping is that by mentioning this, I hope to bring maybe a, a thought to your head. I want you to think about this. How would you at least think about things that we should conceptualize or things that we should organize and formulate when it comes to an idea or maybe a perceived idea of what the ummah or the unified Muslim body should really be like? And at the very least, and, and I think that this is the most important part, at the very least, if you really want the ummah, you can't have it by simply trying to ignore it or to forget about it. If you really want it, you have to at least start to think about it. In conclusion, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on what the ummah is and what uh, I guess it means to be, or or maybe what a better way to formulate that is what it means to say that we want an ummah or a unified Muslim body. Um, I, uh, I hope that today's episode was uh, interesting at least, or maybe caught your attention. 
if you did enjoy today's episode, please remember to leave a five-star review on whatever uh, podcast host you're listening to this from, either on Spotify or an Apple podcast. If you just sort of scroll through, uh, you should be able to find the rating system. So if you haven't already, please go and rate this podcast with the five stars. Uh, it really helps me uh, continue making the podcast. Um, and of course, as well, it'll also, uh, you know, give a better rating to the podcast. So, you know, others can listen to it as well, which of course will again, allow me to continue making episodes uh, of the podcast. And as well as if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to share it with others. If you enjoyed it, I'm sure others will as well. And, you know, if you guys can share it and you can maybe start getting a conversation going on, you know, what it actually means to to be an Ummah. And, and if you do have a conversation about it with someone else and you come across something interesting, please share it with me. You can find me on Instagram. It's Muslims in your backyard. Um, I will often post episode previews and I will also post other things as well. I, I have been a bit busy recently, so I haven't been as uh, frequently when it comes to posting on my Instagram account, but I hope to get back into that. But if you do have anything uh, of interest, please share it with me. I'll have a post uh, about this episode where if you have any comments, you can just leave it there and I'll uh, hopefully we can start a conversation and I'll get back to you uh, whenever I can. But Again, if you guys did enjoy today's episode, thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week's episode, I will continue this topic and I will focus on, uh, again, more about the Muslim Ummah in sort of a historical context and look at how the Ummah has been organized uh, in previous generations as well. So it'll be more of a historical episode than more of one that was a conceptual one like today. But other than that, again, Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support. And inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again.